stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. There are rumors that today's guest, Roxanne Gay, either doesn't need to sleep or has undisclosed superpowers. Consider the evidence. Roxanne Gay is a professor at Eastern Illinois University, the co-editor of Pank Magazine and Literary Arts Collective, the essay editor for The Rumpus, a frequent contributor of essays, interviews, and reviews to publications from The Daily Beast and Salon to The Guardian and The New York Times, her short fiction has appeared in innumerable journals as well as Best American Short Stories, Best American Erotica, and Best American Mystery Stories. And while Roxane Gay has rose to become a go-to cultural commentator on gender, power, and identity with a column in the Nation magazine on writers of color, she's also an avid watcher of television, follower of and commentator on pop culture trends, a competitive Scrabble player, and a frequent tweeter delighting her 16,000 followers with her lighter side from her love of all things Channing Tatum to her thoughts on the latest pay-per-view movie on TV. Her essay collection, Bad Feminist, is to be released this fall, and Roxane Gay is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her just-released and much-talk-about debut novel, An Untamed State, one that Edwidge Dantica describes as a novel of hope intermingled with fear, a book about possibilities mixed with horror and despair. It is written at a pace that will match your racing heart, and while you find yourself shocked, amazed, devastated, you also dare to hope for the best for all involved. Welcome to Between the Covers, Roxanne Gay. Thank you for having me, David. So, Roxanne, in an, in an untamed state, we're following the story of Mireille, a yes. Haitian-American who goes with her American husband and her newborn infant to visit family in Haiti mm-hmm. and is uh, the victim of a, of a kidnapping. Yes. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how you arrived at this as, an, as the narrative for, for the story and, and what compelled you about it? Yeah, my parents are Haitian. And when I was a kid, we would go to Haiti during the summers and I thought it was a paradise. We would go to the beach, we would go to the mountains, we would have all these adventures. And the older I got, the more I realized that there was another side to paradise and that our comfort came at a price. And so kidnapping is something that happens everywhere. Um, And it's also something that happens in Port-au-Prince. And so I wanted to write a story about that. And so I wrote a short story called Things I Know About Fairy Tales. And in the short story, Mireille is kidnapped and held for 13 days. And the story ends when she and her husband are on an airplane returning to the United States. But the story stayed with me. I just couldn't let it go. And so I decided to turn it into a novel. 
And so I spent a summer just writing this story and just thinking, you know, in addition to being kidnapped, what what would make it even more just horrifying? And I could see a, a strong-willed father being reluctant to pay the ransom. And so it's a novel about how a woman comes to terms with a country she never really knew and also tries to come to terms with a father's betrayal. Well, I think one of the the crucial parts of An Untamed State that makes it really dimensional is the fact that you choose a, a protagonist who's from Haiti but also from the privileged family mm-hmm. and that her family, while fully Haitian, is you know living on a hill and is, is walled off from what's going on in mm-hmm. Haiti in general, which feels in a, in a way like it mimics what America does in general, even though this isn't America doing it, it is people in Haiti themselves doing it. Absolutely. I think, and a lot of people have said, oh, things must be terrible in Haiti, but Haiti's a wonderful place. And it's, frankly, it's no different from the United States or anywhere else in the world. We concentrate our wealth and the rest of us have to sort of get by. I was in Los Angeles and I was taking a tour and one minute we were in Beverly Hills and the next minute we were on Skid Row where there were hundreds of homeless people just living on the streets. Um, and the people in Beverly Hills were living behind, you know, gated mansions. And there were shrubs. And I just thought, oh, the world is the same no matter where you go. And so in this novel, Mireille's family, they're not bad people. They're, they're wealthy and they've earned their wealth um, because her parents start out poor. Um, but I think that somewhere along the way you forget um, – that your wealth oftentimes comes on the backs of someone else. And what's interesting about this, this walled off mentality of Murray's father is his hesitancy to pay the ransom of the kidnappers, the sentiment that if he were to pay, when would the paying stop? And that feels very resonant with a walled off mentality, Mm -hmm. say around reparations or Mm -hmm. around any number of issues that, where would it stop if we if we um, if we started if we started to acknowledge the, this disparity and this privilege? Absolutely, and I, I think that the father is is a principled man. And I, I, I when as I wrote his character, I, I empathized a bit. I mean, I, I was very angry with him, even though I made him. But I was I empathized with that position because where does it end? And the kidnappers aren't. They think they're on a moral crusade, but they're not. They're committing a crime, and actually they commit many crimes. And so, you know, this is a situation where no one is entirely right and no one is entirely wrong. And what's what's interesting also is with Mireille being uh, Haitian-American mm-hmm. and married to an American mm-hmm. and also coming from uh, a part of Haitian society that isn't as integrated as, say, the average Haitian would be, um, she's sort of part of both worlds mm-hmm. and not part of either world at the yes. same time. There's this dissonance in both of the places. Yes, absolutely. And that's something that's marked a lot of my writing, how we inhabit multiple identities and how that can be something of not a burden, but a challenge trying to figure out where exactly you belong and with whom. I'm always hesitant to you know push hard on how a piece of fiction mirrors autobiography, but mm-hmm. it did make me curious what it must have been like to grow up as a Haitian American in Nebraska for you? It was interesting. I mean, I was very lucky. Um, My parents sheltered us quite a lot. And so, I mean, in many ways, it was idyllic. But at the same time, 
uh, we were the only black family in our neighborhood, and my brothers and I were often the only black students at our schools. And so, um, you know, I didn't, that didn't, you know, make me feel one way or another. But um, when I would go to Haiti, I would recognize that, oh, here are people that look like me. Um, and that was interesting. And yet we were too American in Haiti, and we were too Haitian here in America. And so that was a challenge, definitely. With Marais being married to someone from Nebraska, mm-hmm. I believe, we get to see sort of unexamined uh, American stereotypes about Haiti. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that really plays itself out in their, in their marriage and the conflicts about whether to visit mm-hmm. and, and what it all means to visit. What, what do you consider some of the, the more egregious stereotypes that Americans have about Haiti that you wanted to dispel in the book? Well, definitely the things that Michael sort of imagines, like, oh, he's taking a bunch of bottled water to the country. And, and when they first visit the country together and Mireille just looks at him like, are you insane? Um, you know, a lot of times people, I mean, what you see on television is only part of the story. Haiti has a lot of beauty and a lot of the same things that we do here. There are nightclubs and restaurants and cafes and people, you know, have lives, um, and alongside that, we have the overwhelming poverty. And um, I think it's the kind of place that people should go and see and make their own determinations rather than listening to very singular narratives. So one of the things that really gets um, talked a lot about in an intense state is that during Marais' 13-day captivity, she's subject to extreme and protracted sexual violence. Yes. And you choose to hold us in that, to really um, not flinch and look away, uh, both about the actual details of the violence itself, but then the psychological and physical mm-hmm. aftermath of that. And I was curious if that was um, an obvious choice from you from the start, or whether it was something you deliberated around when you were trying to figure out what relationship to have to that narrative. Um, both. I mean, it was always a deliberate choice. I think that all too often when we write violence or depict violence in entertainment, um, it's too stylized. And so, you know, we see like a woman being grabbed and then the camera goes dark and then we see the aftermath. And um, I think that it gives us an inaccurate sense of what it's like to actually endure trauma. And so I wanted to look at directly on and write it explicitly uh, because I wanted people to look away. I wanted people to say, you know what, this is actually unreadable. Um, you wanted people to look away. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, and But I mean, I also wanted them to look back to sort of see, you know, how does she get through this? And at the same time, I struggled because I didn't want it to be gratuitous and I didn't want, I didn't want it to be gratuitous. And I didn't also, I mean, I'm not here to traumatize the reader. Um, so I just tried to find that fine balance between um, not stylizing it and um, not being overly gratuitous or overly sadistic toward the reader. One of my my favorite essays by you is The Careless Language of Sexual Violence. Mm -hmm. And I... That talks a lot about maybe you can you can contextualize this for our listeners about the New York Times article mm-hmm. about the eleven year old girl who was gang raped and, mm-hmm. and the horrible way it was portrayed in the New York Times. But um, I, I felt like an untamed state in this this specific choice to m- hold us in this moment of horror and make us want to look away and look back was a corrective to this phenomenon that you were writing about in the in the careless. Uh, the careless language of sexual violence. Absolutely. Um, I wrote that essay around the time I was beginning to embark on this novel. Um, and so it very much was a corrective sort of, you know, maybe if more people 
depicted these kinds of events as they are, then fewer people would write headlines like the poor town of Cleveland, Texas. Oh, it's just going through so much. Now, the 11-year-old girl who was gang raped by a bunch of grown men, she was the one who was going through hell, not the town. I don't care about the town. Um, And so, yeah, in some ways it was a corrective. And it's interesting because that article just made one error, an error made one, you know, faux pas after another mm-hmm. with where was her mother or. Yes. I mean, the, the the victim blaming and I, you know, it just made me think people have forgotten what 11 years old is. I don't care what she was wearing or where her mother was. She was 11 and there were numerous, I mean, the number shifts, but like nearly 30 grown men. So like. Why would you ask any questions? I mean, this is a horrifying crime. And oftentimes when we're faced with just this kind of staggering information, people are still doubting it. Like, look what happened in um, Santa Barbara. And we have a young man who blatantly said, I hate women. And people were like, "Mm, maybe misogyny is not at work here. I mean, it's just insane. So. So there's a quote in that essay. I am troubled by how we have allowed intellectual distance between violence and the representation of violence. We talk about rape, but we don't talk about rape, not carefully. That really feels like it could have been a quote at the beginning of Untamed State. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, Because I think we talk around rape. And I think there are some, you know, if you've survived rape and you don't want to talk about it, that's entirely your right. But I think a lot of people approach rape very intellectually. I mean, we always hear the party line. Um, it's about violence, not about sex. And that's well and good, but it's al- it's also about sex. It's about the body. Um, and so in a lot of my work, I'm very interested in sort of reminding us that in addition to whatever power dynamics and other things are going on, that very real things happen to the body during these experiences. And then very real things happen to the mind. We're talking today to Roxane Gay about her debut novel, An Untamed State. There's a lot of debate right now in the news about trigger warnings, mm-hmm. um, partially because a couple of universities or several universities are, are possibly thinking about institutionalizing them in, in their educational systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've written an essay about trigger warnings, and, and you're not a big fan of trigger warnings. Obviously, if there were trigger warnings, this would be a book that potentially could have one at the beginning. Yes. Uh, could, could you tell our listeners what who don't know what trigger warnings are, what they are, and and why you wouldn't want one in front of an untamed state. Yeah, a trigger warning is basically a way of letting the reader know that there are potentially harmful things that might trigger them and make them emotionally uncomfortable. And so you can have trigger warnings for sexual violence, physical violence, um, but increasingly there are whole, there's a more broad range of um, trigger warnings, trigger warnings about um, gender about ability, sexuality. Um, and so it becomes a po- a question of when do we stop? Again, you know, what what is the limit to this? I mean, life needs a trigger warning, quite honestly, because life is hard. And um, so my stance is that I don't believe in trigger warnings, but I also respect that people need them. They're not for me, but they are not it is not about me it's trigger warnings are for the people that need them but i wouldn't want to put a trigger warning on an untamed state because um what is that saying i mean it's like warning people off of literature and i think that's dangerous and i think if we only read things that make us comfortable we might end up in a narrow view i i don't want someone who would be traumatized by this book to read this book but 
for better or worse, um, a lot of the people talking about the book keep sort of intensely focusing on it. So I feel like the trigger warning is already out there. People know what this book is about. It's about a kidnapping um, and a woman who's subjected to sexual violence and then how she overcomes it. And so I think there's enough information out there that the trigger warning isn't even needed at this point. But no, I just I don't want to wall off my work. Can you read a little bit from the book for us? No. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I absolutely can. Oh, phew. <laughs> so I'll just read from the first chapter. Okay, excellent. Once upon a time, in a far-off land, I was kidnapped by a gang of fearless yet terrified young men with so much impossible hope beating inside their bodies it burned their very skin and strengthened their will right through their bones. They held me captive for 13 days. They wanted to break me. It was not personal. I was not broken. This is what I tell myself. It was hot, nearly a hundred degrees, the air so thick it felt like warm rain. I dressed my son Christoph in a pair of miniature red board shorts and a light blue t-shirt with a sailboat across the front. I covered his smooth brown arms and his beaming face with sunscreen. I kissed his nose and brushed his thick, dirty blonde curls away from his face as he pressed his palms against my cheeks and shouted, Mama, Mama, Mama. My husband Michael, the baby, and I said goodbye to my parents, told them that we would be back in time for dinner. Michael and I were taking Kristoff to the ocean for the first time. We were going to hold him in the warm salt water as he wiggled his toes and kicked his chubby legs. We were going to throw him toward the sun and catch him safely in our arms. My mother smiled from the balcony where she watered her plants, wearing a crisp linen outfit and high heels. She blew a kiss to her grandson. She reminded us to be safe. We put our son in his car seat. We handed him his favorite stuffed animal, a little bulldog named Baba. He clenched his beloved toy tightly in his little fist, still smiling. He has his father's temperament. He is usually happy, and that is important to me. Before getting into the car, Michael double-checked that Kristoff was strapped securely in his car seat. He put our beach bags in the trunk. Michael held my door open. When he closed it, he pressed his face against the window and blew air until his cheeks filled. I laughed and pressed my hand against his face through the glass. I love you, I mouthed. I don't say those words often, but he knows. Michael ran around to his side of the car. After he slid behind the steering wheel and adjusted the rearview mirror so he could see the baby, he leaned into me and we kissed. He rested an arm on the armrest between us and I idly brushed the golden wisps of hair on his arm. I smiled and rested my head on his shoulder. We drove down the long steep hill of my parents' driveway and waited quietly for the heavy steel gates, the gates keeping us safe, to open. In the back seat, Christophe cooed softly, still smiling. As the gates closed behind us, three black land cruisers surrounded our car. The air filled with a high-pitched squealing and the smell of burning rubber. Michael's tan knuckles turned white as he gripped the steering wheel and looked frantically for a way out. His body shook. The doors of all three trucks opened at the same time, and men we did not know spilled out, all limbs and gunmetal. There was silence, the air thin, still hot. My breath caught painfully in my ribcage. There was shouting. Two men stood behind our car, machine guns raised. Michael pressed his foot against the gas pedal to move forward, but a tall man with a red bandana across his face, a man holding a machine gun, pounded his fist on the hood of the car. He left a small dent in the shape of his closed hand. He glared at us and then raised his gun, pointed it directly at Michael's chest. I threw my arm across my husband's body. It was a silly, impotent gesture. 
Michael's eyes were bright and arcs of tears trembled along his lower eyelids. He grabbed my hand between both of his, held me so fiercely, it felt like all those slender bones would be crushed. Two men slammed the butts of their rifles against the car windows. Their bodies glowed with anger. The glass cracked, fractures spreading. Michael and I pulled apart, waited tensely, and then the windshield broke, the sound loud and echoing. We covered our faces as shards of glass shattered around us, refracting sharp prisms of light. Michael and I reached for Christophe at the same time. The baby was still smiling, but his lips quivered, his eyes wide. My hands could not quite reach him. My child was so close my fingers thrummed. If I touched my child, we would all be fine. This terrible thing would not happen. A man reached into the window and unlocked my door. He started to pull me out of the car, roughly growling as the seatbelt held me inside. After he slapped my face, he ordered me to unlock my seatbelt. My hands shook as I depressed the button. I was lifted up and out of the car and thrown onto the street. The skin covering my face stung. My body deflated. My body was just skin stretched too tightly over bone, nothing more, no air. The man sneered at me, called me diaspora, with the resentment those Haitians who cannot leave hold for those of us who can. His skin was slick. I couldn't hold on to him. I tried to scratch, but my fingers only collected a thick layer of sweat. I tried to grab onto the car door. He slammed his gun against my fingers. I yelled, My baby, don't hurt my baby. One of the men grabbed me by my hair and threw me to the ground, kicked me in my stomach. I gasped as I wrapped my arms around myself. A small crowd gathered. I begged them to help. They did not. They stood and watched me, fight, screaming and fighting with all the muscle in my heart. I saw their faces and the indifference in their eyes, the relief that it was not yet their time. The wolves had not yet come for them. You've been listening to Roxane Gay read from her debut novel, An Untamed State. Your, your novel starts with Once Upon a Time in a Far-Off Land. And yes. probably my favorite review so far of the book is the Holly Bass's review in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. And she really um, delves into the, the fairy tale aspect of this book mm -hmm. and looks at the way our modern tellings of fairy tales are sort of whitewashing of the darkness that really exists in all of them. And mm -hmm. she mentions... Sleeping Beauty originally having been raped while she was unconscious uh -huh. and uh, the wicked stepmother and Snow White not wanting to just kill her, but actually to eat, eat her organs. Uh -huh. um, can you tell us uh, what the explicit reference to fairy tales in, in this story is for you? Definitely. Um, from the original short story through the novel, I was very interested in short uh, in fairy tales um, because there are two fairy tales. There are the ones that we know now, the Disney-fied versions, um, where there's a happily ever after and a Prince Charming and there's some evil, but the evil can be overcome. And then there are the original fairy tales in which there's hope and happily ever after, but happily ever after is nothing like what we think it is. It just means perhaps survival. Uh, and they're much darker and far more graphic and terrible things happen and to women, unfortunately, in the fairy tales. And so I was really looking at fairy tales and how dangerous they are, I think, for women in both versions. And so the novel be is told in two parts. The first part is happily ever after because there's a lot of reflection from Mireille while she's being held as to what her life was like before she was kidnapped, as she comes to realize, I was living a fairy tale. And then when she's released, the second half of the novel is Once Upon a Time, because she has to embark on an entirely new life as an entirely new person and try to find her way back to what she once had. And so I, I'm both, I think, building and tearing down fairy tales 
as I throughout the novel. And there's certainly also the immigration fairy tale. That- Absolutely. We're, we're very, um, you know, this country is very enamored with the idea that America is the land of opportunity. Uh, and it is. Um, but it's that opportunity comes at such a high price and it demands so much of the people who reach for it and it's not promised to everyone. And so, yeah, absolutely. Immigration is a fairy tale. Like I can go to this new country and start over and make something of myself. And I think that's part of what holds her father back from doing the right thing when his daughter is kidnapped because he's a self-made man, because his fairy tale was the one that he needed. Um, he's just unwilling to let go of that. And you you have an essay in the New York Times yourself called The Marriage Plot, which also <laughs> feels like it resonates with, with this book mm-hmm. in in the sense that this book has two fairy tales around courtship, one about Mireille's parents and one about Mireille and her husband herself mm-hmm. that get dispelled. And you talk in The, in the Marriage Plot about um, the sort of destructive addictiveness of some of these reality TV shows like mm-hmm. The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. Can, can you talk a little bit more about, about that essay in, yeah. in light of an untamed state? Definitely. I, I watched The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. <laughs> I'm not proud of that. But uh, there really are addictive shows. But as I watch them, I, it's hard for me to turn my brain off and to see some of these really damaging narratives that emerge of um, – fairy tales they they obsess over fairy tales on the show and like sometimes i make little drinking games like for every time they say i feel like a princess drink um and on some episodes <laughs> one may not be able to you know go home and um, so you know i i think that in an untamed state Mireille and her mother both experience fairy tale like courtships with the men that they eventually fall in love with. But there are some wrinkles along the way and the kinds of things that we don't see on these glamorized reality shows where people are finding love, where people make mistakes and say stupid things and um, are human. You ha- eventually have to live with Prince Charming. And so in their fairy tales, we see what it's like to live with the Prince Charmings. Um, and we don't see that in these shows. We see what it takes to get Prince Charming or in the case of The Bachelorette, Princess Charming, and then it ends. And we suspect Happily Ever After is out there, but we never know what it actually looks like from the inside. And I think in this novel, we see what it's like from the inside. Hmm. Well, another thing that's really remarkable about that first line, the Once Upon a Timeline, where you, you dis, you dis, she describes her own kidnapping, mm-hmm. is that um, you would expect in a good novel like yours that the author would make the less appealing characters dimensional, that mm-hmm. there was some empathy extended to the father, that there's some dimensionality to the people who are kidnapping her. And mm-hmm. you, you achieve that really well, but you wouldn't, the, I don't think the reader necessarily expects that the victim herself would have those would, would extend that mm-hmm. empathy and dimensionality to, to these people. And yet, even in the first line with the hints of, um, I was kidnapped by a gang of fearless yet terrified young men, with so much impossible hope beating inside their bodies that you get the sense of something indestructible in, in Mireille. Mm-hmm. And, and when you talk about the older fairy tales that, that are, have darker, happily ever afters, mm-hmm. it feels almost like the first line hints at something in her that no matter how horrible the ordeal and the aftermath of the ordeal, there's something that remained mm-hmm. of Mireille. Absolutely. Um, you know, she is a changed woman after her ordeal, but as her mother-in-law reminds her toward the end of the novel, there is good in you yet. And I don't think that you have to be a good person to empathize. I think that 
there's no correct reaction and there's no correct way of seeing the people who betray you in a situation like this. But for Mireille, uh, she comes to understand, even though she hates these men, she does understand sort of what gave rise to their rage and to their deviance. Uh, not necessarily the commander, but the other men involved. She sees them for what they are. The commander is just a psychopath. Um, but... Um, she doesn't want to lose the good in her. And so she holds on to that. And that's how she knows she wasn't broken. And that's how she knows that some part of her did survive, that she is able to look beyond what she endured and see that everybody suffers. And what does the title mean? The title, I think, means a couple different things. I think that when she's released, she's completely wild and she is feral. She has just lost everything. And so she no longer you know, she cannot be tamed. Um, and I also think that the world is an untamed state and that there is the illusion of safety. Um, and so the, the title speaks to both of those things. One of the most powerful parts for me about reading the aftermath when, when she is in her wild state Mm -hmm. and is trying to figure a way, a way back, Mm -hmm. um, is how you portray, uh, the way, everyday institutions are, are colored and influenced by male power. And, mm-hmm. and particularly in this case, the medical system, when, yeah. when she needs medical attention, mm-hmm. yet everyone interfacing with her are men. Mm-hmm. And those men don't know how to interface with her in a way that can make her feel safe. They're, they're well-meaning potentially, yes. but it's a complete disaster. Yes. And she doesn't get the care she needs mm-hmm. because of it. It is a complete disaster. And I think that it, it is a complete disaster in reality as well. Um, I don't think there's a right way. Um, there's, it's hard to know what a victim needs in the aftermath. But it, in the beginning, when she's first taken to the doctor in Port-au-Prince, like everyone is just thinking, oh, she needs medical care. But they're not even thinking about this woman has been alone with men for 13 days. Um, so maybe it's not a good idea to put her alone in a room with another man that she doesn't know um, where she has to make herself more vulnerable. And then her husband keeps insisting on this idea of medical care um, when they get back to the United States and he doesn't even begin to imagine what it would be like for her to put herself in that situation. And so several weeks go by before her mother-in-law finally realizes, you know what, let me take her to a woman doctor. Um, and she finally begins to get the care she needs because I think sometimes only another woman will understand, okay, I know what you need now. And she also, the mother-in-law is also willing to wait um, until she senses that Mireille can handle it. And how much were you drawing on purely imaginative faculties and versus doing research for the book? Um, I didn't really do any research for the book. Um, because I didn't want to co-opt anyone's stories. I did research, do research on the physical after effects mm. um, just to make sure I got it right. But I used my imagination. And were there any touchstone books for you, ones that you either literally went to for inspiration or um, were just inspiring sort of in the background and, and, and you know, infused your, your endeavor? Um, a book I thought about quite a lot and that, was a bit of a touchstone was room by Emma Donahue. Hmm. Um, it's a book about a woman who is held captive for several years and she has a son by her kidnapper. And when they're released, the entire novel is told um, before and after the release, the novel is told from the perspective of her son, Jack. Um, and I thought it was the most refreshing and unexpected way of depicting trauma. And I wanted to, 
find something new to do. And so that was very much an inspiration for me. I'm sure you're probably at this point somewhat tired of the questions about your your remarkable productivity. <laughs> however, however, um, you you're I'm guessing you're a, you're a relatively fast writer because you yep. you wrote an Untamed State in 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 a summer in a summer, mm-hmm. and um, you also are an avid follower of of popular culture through mm-hmm. television, a big fan of television. Yeah, I and, love TV, and I and I read that you even sometimes write. Some of your essays while watching Law and Order SVU. Hell yeah, <laughs> I do. So, so I was curious about you. You talking about your childhood and how you appreciated that your parents didn't allow you to watch TV. That that was good for you, mm-hmm. and yet TV is really crucial for you now. And I, I would love for you to unpack that paradox for us. Oh, I'm making up for lost time. <laughs> uh, when I was a kid, I mean, we hated it. We were allowed one hour of television a week. And it had to be an approved hour, so it wasn't just anything. Um, and But the older I get, the more I realize what that allowed me to do. And it, it allowed me to write and to read and use my imagination and to be resourceful. Like, I can sit in a room for five hours and I'll be fine. Um, and so I, I appreciate that. But I also now appreciate that I can both be productive and I can watch television and enjoy myself. And so... Um, I definitely am making up for lost time. And also TV, I just like having it on in the background. Yeah. Are there any shows or or movies that you're particularly jazzed about at the moment? Oh, well, Law and Order as for you. That's your, (laughs) that's 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 my go-to show. (laughs) Um, You know, I have not seen a good movie in a very long time. Um, The one good movie I've seen recently was Enough Said with um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and um, that poor man who died. Yeah, that James Gandolfini. I haven't seen it yet. It's brilliant. It's definitely it's by far one of the best movies I've ever seen, and certainly the best movie I've seen in the past six months. Um, this year, I've just seen a bunch of bloated thrillers and blockbuster movies that were just terrible. And what about you're you're a big champion of of writers in general? Mm-hmm. And uh, are there any writers right now or or books that you're reading that you are particularly interested in that you'd like to spread the word about? Um. A book that came out yesterday that I love is Christina Enriquez's the book, the book of unknown Americans, which it's by far one of my favorite books of the year. Um, I always love the writing of XTX. Uh, she's always doing something truly innovative and outstanding. Um, I really like Ryan. Um, like she pronounces it Rian. Rian Almakar Scott is a great writer. He does short fiction and essays and humor. Um, so there are a lot of, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. There are so many writers that are exciting me right now. Ashley Ford, Saeed Jones. I'm really interested in what Ruth Franklin is working on at all times. She's a really great literary critic, and she's working on a book about Shirley Jackson, hmm. and I cannot wait to read it. That sounds great. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on right now? What can we expect from you? I know you have Bad Feminist coming out. I and, do. And then you have a book coming out about cooking and, and, and female body image, right? Yes, in 2016. And are you working on that right now or is there something else? Theoretically. On? Theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Hunger is my next nonfiction book. Uh, and I'm also working on a f- some fiction projects. You are? <laughs> I am. Oh, yeah, I'm working on my next two novels. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Wow, so you're you're keeping it up. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's awesome. I mean, writing is fun for me, so. Yeah. Well, it was a pleasure having you on Between the Covers, Roxanne. It was a pleasure being Between the Covers. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking today with Roxanne Gay, the author of An Untamed State. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. <laughs> <laughs>